Okay, we are in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 29, so uh, you could turn there. There's Bibles available if you need one. They're right outside the door. Make sure you get your own Bible. We're going to have one and bring it with you. We would encourage you. Uh, while we are gathering here, the, the guys that are down and gals that are down in Belize, they're getting ready to depart the country. They're probably at church this morning. Uh, I think their flight is about 5 p.m. here. Uh, it'll be like 3 p.m. down there. So um, we want to pray for them. They'll be uh, arriving in Philadelphia around 1 a.m. Uh, tomorrow morning, I guess you might say. So we want to be uh, praying for them. Let's do that. Father, thank you so much for uh, the Belize team. We thank you for their uh, commitment this last week to just give and give. Lord, we know that uh, being in Central America in the middle of the summer, it's hot. And uh, they've been running around and really uh, pouring themselves out on behalf of others and ultimately for you. And Lord, uh, we pray this last day, Lord, as they go to church together and they fellowship with the saints from uh, the nation of Belize, Lord, that you would just bless them, you'd minister to their hearts in a very fresh way. Lord, you'd just give them uh, a sense of heaven as their hearts are knit together by the Holy Spirit with uh, saints that may speak a, a different language or communicate um, with an accent that is a little uh, different from their own, Lord, but that there will be a union of heart that is just from you, Lord. And uh, bless them richly. Keep them safe as they travel. Lord, is our prayer. Uh, bring them home to us. Uh, and then we look forward to hearing all the good and wonderful ways in which you worked in their life uh, and through them. Father, this morning as we come, Lord, our heart is to hear from you. We want to be, Lord, in, in such a place where your spirit is speaking and we know it is your voice. And Lord, we want to come with an attitude of a heart that says and, and that demonstrates that we're ready. We want to hear from you. We want uh, you to expose areas of our lives. We want to receive from you the ministry of the Spirit. And so we ask that you would use your word very powerfully in our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the book of Second uh, Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, and we're moving through this book. Uh, and as we've been doing so, please be reminded that we've been looking at the history of the nation of Israel. Remember, Israel divided somewhere around the year 930 or so, 950 or so uh, B.C. It divided civil war. You have a northern kingdom, you have a southern kingdom. And the book of Second Chronicles is looking primarily at that southern kingdom, what we call Judah. In our studies, we've been looking at sort of the good and the bad, the positives and the negatives of that people. And remember, it's a book that is written after the fact. This book is written somewhere around the year 500 B.C. King Solomon was 1,000 B.C. And so all of those people and all those kings that came before, none of the guys that are alive reading the book would have lived with them or known them necessarily. They just knew about them. But the writer, we think his name is Ezra, he's writing to the people as they're coming from captivity. They're about to return to the land and in doing so, he is simply saying, let's learn the lesson from our forefathers. Let's learn the lessons from these that have come before us and have failed and those that have succeeded. And let's not make the same mistakes. That's generally the nature of the point of the book. And in doing so, uh, we come now, in our study that is, we come now to the reign of a man by the name of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the 13th king of the southern kingdom, of the kingdom of Judah when the nation divided there. And he was a king. Uh, he became king at 25 years of age. He reigned for 29 years of his life, which means more of his life was spent being a king than it was not being a king. He becomes king roughly around the year 724 B.C. And that number should be familiar with, to a lot of us because you know that in 722 B.C. that the Assyrian nation, the Assyrian Empire, made its way in and took over the northern kingdom. So while he is king in the south in 724, just a couple of years later in 722, the north is conquered by an enemy nation, the Assyrians. And those Assyrians will make their way to the border of Jerusalem, essentially, or the border of Judah, and threaten to overtake King Hezekiah as well. We'll spend some time and we'll look at that. King Hezekiah becomes king during a very dark, troubling time in the nation of Judah. Now, the reason he becomes king is with all these other guys in the line of Judah, his father passed away. And so we read in chapter 28, the last verse, it says, And Ahaz, that's his dad, slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah's son reigned in his place. 
Now, if you were with us, you know a lot about Hezekiah, or excuse me, about Ahaz, because we looked at him last week. But if you weren't with us and you only read that particular verse here, the fact that he was not buried in the tombs of the kings of Israel demonstrate that the people didn't have a lot of respect for him, which demonstrates that he was not a good king in the history of the nation. He was actually a very, very wicked king. We'll talk about that more in a second. And it's upon his death that Hezekiah, verse 1 of chapter 29, becomes king. So it says, Hezekiah, his son, began to reign when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah. She was the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right yay, in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. One of the things I think is significant about those couple of verses is there's no mention made of Hezekiah's dad in the genealogy. We learn about Abijah, his, grand, his mom. We learn about Zechariah, his mother's father or his grandfather. And it's almost as if the author, Ezra, is trying to just move, let's just get past those dark days of Ahaz and let's move on to something better, a better part of the story. Four chapters coming up now are going to talk about this guy, Hezekiah. I think Ezra has like a crush on Hezekiah. He's like, I like that guy. Let's talk a lot about him in that sense. He's his hero. So he's going to write a lot about King Hezekiah. But before we do that, I want to paint the picture again of where, what Hezekiah is coming into. Remember, Ahaz was a terribly wicked king of Judah. Last week I read to you three or four different commentaries and what they had to say about King Ahaz. This is one that I didn't read to you. This is from G. Campbell Morgan. He says, The reign of Ahaz was a period of terrible and rapid degeneracy in Judah. With appalling fearlessness, the king restored all the evils of idolatry, even including the ghastly offering of children as sacrifices unto the god, the false god Molech. He was a man evil by deliberate choice. He was persistent in evil in spite of calamity. And he was blasphemously rebellious, notwithstanding direct warnings. Idolatry, wickedness, immorality. And not only did those things occur during his kingdom, or not only did he do those things sort of in a back room somewhere, he encouraged the nation, this is the direction we're going, these are the things that we are going to do. And again, to use Morgan's words there, it was terrible and rapid degeneracy in Judah. The very fact that Hezekiah is king is likely due to the fact that his older brothers were offered to these gods as sacrifices to the god there of Molech. And now Hezekiah, he becomes the king. One of the things we read in chapter 28, verse 24, is that Ahaz shut down temple worship. Ahaz was king for 16 years. We don't know exactly when he did it, but he shut down temple worship. He decided, you know what, we're the Jewish people. We're governed by the god Uh, of Israel, uh, Yahweh, but we're not going to worship him anymore. We're going a new direction. We're going to become a new nation. The word there for shuts down could actually be a word that could be translated nails the doors shut. And the idea is you put the boards up on the doors and the windows, there weren't none, but you put the doors on the windows, nobody is going in, it's out of business, we've moved on to another line of work here. Ahaz has uh, brought the nation to this particular place. We've read that the nation was under frequent attack during the reign of Ahaz. We read last week that in one of those battles, 120,000 people of Judah, Jewish people, were killed in that particular battle. Men of great valor. Um, We said that they were like Navy SEALs. So their army is weakened. Another place it talks about uh, the captives that are being taken away or threatened to be taken away all over the place there. And it's into all of these things, the immorality, the weakness of the nation, all these things, that Hezekiah is named to be the king. And I can't help but wonder, and I'm sure there were times he thought twice about whether he wanted to accept the job of being the king of this particular nation. But he does accept it. And I love the direction this guy goes because he comes in to absolute and total darkness. And he says, you know what? Just start flipping on lights. We're going to change things in this particular place. And I appreciate that about him. Notice what it says in verse 3, is that he immediately gets to work. Verse 3 says, In the first year of his reign, in the first month of his reign, he opens the doors of the house of the Lord and he begins to repair them. His dad, his predecessor, King Ahaz, had shut the doors of the temple. He now is going to do the complete converse and he is going to open them wide. The first thing Ahaz is going to do is restore temple worship to the Jewish people. And again, notice, first month of the first year. 
And this speaks to me, and it tells me that Hezekiah here is aware of the fact that uh, he knew that the nation would only rebound if it was restored first and foremost to its relationship with Jehovah. Now, you could make an argument that Hezekiah is the greatest of all the kings of Israel, even greater perhaps than King David. King David is usually the standard, so you'd probably lose that particular argument. But you could certainly have a meaningful debate that Hezekiah is right up there, if not number one. There are 11 chapters in the Bible that are um, focused on this particular fellow, that tell his story. Some people get one verse in the Bible. He has 11 chapters. Four chapters in the book of Isaiah, four chapters here in Second Chronicles, and another three that are found in 2 Kings. And what I would encourage you to do, we're going to study the next two or three weeks the life of King Hezekiah. I'd encourage you to read those other passages. I'll give them to you again. Isaiah 36 to 39, 2 Chronicles 29 to 32, and 2 Kings 18 to 20. Because I think some of the way things are written in those other places there shed a little bit uh, more light and insight into what's going on in this guy's life. And really drives home the significance of the decisions that he is making and the change that he is bringing to the kingdom. Hezekiah fits into the category of one of the good kings of Judah. And what I mean by that is simply, in a summary verse of his life, it says, he did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And we learn that Hezekiah did. So far, as I said, King Hezekiah is the 13th king. So far of the 12 kings of Judah that have come before him, six of those kings are considered good. Now, some of those kings are just so-so, not a lot accomplished, not a lot written about them necessarily, but it does say he did that which was good. Some of those kings, three of them in particular, their names are Uzziah, Joash, and Amaziah, they began very well, but for whatever reason, pride or what, some other sin that kind of enters in, they don't end very well. And then there are three of those six kings that I mentioned to you that they begin well and they accomplish all sorts of things for the kingdom of God. And those kings are what we would refer to as reformer kings. And you may recall the names of some of them, if not the story, but the names Asa and the name Jehoshaphat were reformer kings. And now, a couple hundred years after those guys, now comes a reformer king, perhaps the greatest of the reformer kings, who makes the most significant changes, and that is this fellow by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is going to bring, just like Asa and Jehoshaphat, he's going to bring moral reform to the nation, and he's going to bring spiritual reform to the nation. That is, he's going to get rid of the idolatry and return to people to the right worship of the one true God. And notice again, the first thing that he does, first year of the first month, it says, or month of the first year, is that he makes corporate worship possible again. And we spent some time last week considering the importance of us gathering together with other saints to seek the will of the Lord. That's the first thing that he does. Now the second thing that he does is found in verse 4, and that is that he brought the priests and the Levites and he assembled them in the square uh, on the east. That is, he assembled the priests and the Levites and he gets them back on the job. So I think a good picture for ourselves here is that the temple had been all boarded up and there's a sign there that says, gone out of business. And that the, the owner of this particular business or the foreman or manager of this business had given all the guys pink slips and said, look, you're great guys, but unfortunately there's no job left for you, no job available for you. And all of these priests and these Levites, 6,000 I think the number is, I don't remember exactly, but would come in one week at a time and go back to their communities for the rest of the, the year. And they would do that twice a year. All of these, nobody's coming anymore because there's no work to do. The temple had been closed down. And the picture that I like here is this idea that Hezekiah sends out a note to all of these guys, and he says, hey, look, I, the foreman has something very important to tell you tomorrow. Report to the factory, and we'll let you know what's going to go on when you get there. And when they gather, when he comes, he says, guys, you know what? Suit up. We're open for business starting tomorrow, and we're getting back to the task. You, I need you to report for duty because we're going to get back on the tasks that you hadn't done for 15 years. Can you imagine? The nation of Israel and this glorious temple had not had any sacrifices and acts of worship where the people could come and serve the Lord maybe for as many as 16 years during the reign of Hezekiah, or of Ahaz, I should say. And now Hezekiah is saying, everybody report for duty because we're starting it up again. They're not his exact words. Look at verse 5. It says, Hear me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Carry out the filth from the holy place. 
For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The filth uh, from in the holy place, that's a reference to the worship of false gods. Idolatry that made its way into portions of the temple. He says, get this junk out of here. He says, our fathers have been unfaithful. It continues, they've forsaken him. They've turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord. They turned their backs. They also shut the doors, nailed the doors shut, of the vestibule. They put out the lamps. Remember, inside the lamps. They haven't burned incense or burned offering in the holy place to the God of Israel. And therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem. He's made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you can see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives, they're in captivity for this. Now, it's in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, he says, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence to minister to him and to be his ministers and to make offerings to him. This place hadn't been cleaned up in 16 years, cobwebs, I'm sure, all that sort of stuff. All sorts of uh, things that would uh, enhance the worship of false gods were making their way into the courtyard and into the temple. We learn in other places in the scripture that those things that were needed for the priests and the Levites to offer worship to the God of heaven that those gold-covered implements and stuff were taken out and sent to foreign kings in order to appease them so they wouldn't attack the people of Judah. So the temple is nowhere ready to be worshipped at. Again, you can't just come in, open a door, flick a light on, and start over. The place is a mess. It's a dump. And it all has to be cleaned up and fixed up. And Hezekiah's got a lot of work that has to be done. And here's what I find fascinating about this. Because he has all this work, and and if he's like me, he's got a long list of jobs that have to get done, and he's going to set his alarm, he's going to get up early, and he's just going to start working and banging out jobs and crossing them off the list. But that's not what he does. What he does first is he gathers everybody up, and they're there with the tool belts, and they're ready to go. What do you need me to do? And I got my broom. And he says, all right, here's what I need you to do. Let's all get down on our knees. Go find a quiet place, and let's pray. Let's consecrate ourselves first, to the Lord. You see, I think one of the things that happens for us, and maybe it comes from good intentions, maybe it doesn't, but maybe it comes from a, a good place where I got so much I want to do for God. Or maybe it comes from a place, you know, it's a whole lot easier to do stuff than to sit and listen. I don't know what exactly is causing it, but sometimes there are so many things that have to be done that we run and we run and we run and we want run, and we never stop and sit and listen and get ministered to by the Lord. You see, what Hezekiah realizes is that all the preparation in the world to worship God, you know, cleaning things up and so on, in our tasks and all those things, it's useless if our hearts aren't right before God. And, you know, I think it is a tool of the enemy to keep us so busy doing God's work that we don't have time anymore to just sit with God and to let Him minister to our hearts to let him convict us, to use the word here, to let him consecrate us for the work. Years ago, I was working with a young man, mentoring him, and he was a, like a key leader of his college campus ministry and all these sorts of things. And so we'd get together uh, and we'd talk. And when I'd sit with him, I'd begin the conversation and I'd say, how's your times with the Lord been? And he said, nobody ever asked me that question. And he was a little bit almost kind of bothered by it. He said, I wanted to tell you all the neat things that happened this week and that we did. And I said, yeah, but you know what? They'll all go by the wayside if your heart's not right with the Lord. Spend time with the Lord. Let Him minister to your heart because we can get so busy that when we do finally get ready to do the worship, our hearts aren't ready. They've drifted further and further and further. And so Hezekiah says, first things first, get your own hearts right before me, meaning the Lord, and then you'll be able to minister effectively to Him. And so... For us, we stop and we think, and we say, you know what, how am I doing in my efforts as a children's church teacher? You know, and I'm back there and I do my month on, month off sort of thing, but have you taken that time to let the Lord minister to you, to prepare you to minister to somebody else? Worship leaders, you know, every, what are you on, every other week or something like that, and you come, have you taken the time to let the Lord minister to your heart 
before you minister to another? Even from the perspective of not formal ministry, but how about raising your kids? You're trying to raise your kids to know the Lord and to love the Lord, and yet you take no time to sit before the Lord yourself and let Him minister to your heart? Your place of work. I want to be a witness, God. I want to be an example. I want people to know about you when I go there. Have you taken time before you go into that ministry to let the Lord minister to your heart as well and to change you from the inside out so that you can be that new creation and you can demonstrate the sanctification that He's doing in your life? We need to take that time. So before we embark to do any work, and sometimes it doesn't make sense. Lots to do, no time to pray. You have to pray. First, we have to sit with God. Now, Hezekiah is going to start talking to these guys. I read those verses uh, 3 through 9 or so, 5 through 12, I think it was. Uh, And he begins to paint a picture to them, if you will, of the possibility. He says to them, we're going to return to the glory days of the, the history of the Israelites or the Jewish people. And you, he points to these guys, you're going to lead them there. He paints this picture of the possibilities. He says, this is what's in my heart, verse 10. My heart is to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. He says to them, we want to live a life in accord with what God says he will bless. And we haven't been doing that. And you guys are going to lead the nation to the place where the Lord can bless the Jewish people again. We're going back to those former days. Those days when King Solomon put all of the effort into build this place up, and then on that first day he gathered in front of the hundreds of thousands of people, and the king fell on his knees, and he prayed that prayer, Lord, when your people have strayed and wandered, but when they look back to this place, hear their prayer and forgive them. We're going to that place together. And you, he says to these guys, you're going to lead them. You're going to take them there. Now, the only way that they will be able to do that is found in verse 11, and that is if they're not negligent. So it says, My sons, do not be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in His presence, to minister to Him, and to be His ministers and make an offering to Him. He says to them, Look, you guys have a very high calling, and that is to lead the people into right relationship with God. Don't be negligent in your efforts to fulfill that awesome responsibility. Now, as I, I look at these, and I think some of it has to do with we're getting into late August, uh, and football season is coming up. I, I spent a bunch of time Friday night. I didn't have anything to do Friday night. And so I watched the Eagles play, quote-unquote. I'm not sure if you want to call it that. And, uh, but they were there doing whatever it is they're doing. And I'm watching this game here, and I began thinking. And as I'm thinking about Hezekiah, I'm reminded of, like, the football coach, college football, pro football. And he'll be in the locker room with his team, and he'll start to give them this speech. We're going to do this, and we're going to do that. We're going to knock them down, and we're going to win, and they can't beat you. You're the greatest. And he's giving them this sort of this speech, and he's riling them all up, and then they go running out of the locker room, and they play their game, and hopefully they win, and they do great, all because of the coach's wonderful speech. And I'm sort of thinking that that's what's going on here with Hezekiah. He's giving them this great speech. He's stirring them up, and now the response. Now, I used to be a coach, high school coach and stuff like that, and there would be times, I still coach my son's team, he's about 12 or so, and uh, when I'd be with the guys or the girls, when I was coaching the girls team at the high school, you would, you'd give them this great speech, and you yourself are motivated. If you could go out there and you could do what you just told them to go out and do, man, you'd be ready to go. So you're giving them this great speech, and you're excited about it, and you've opened yourself up there, and we're going to win this game because you're going to outwork the other team and all that. Then you're done. You take a moment and you breathe, and you look at your team, and you just hope that they're with you. You know, you, what you don't want is cricket, 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 you know, that sound. What you don't want is, oh, okay, sure, sounds good, you know, that's sort of But what you want is, yeah, and people running and bumping and hitting each other on the head or whatever it may be. You want them fired up to go out there here. And so here we're at this place where Hezekiah has just given this speech, and the question is, will the players, will these uh, priests and Levites, will they respond? Did they buy into the picture he painted? Have they been moved? Have they been swayed? Have they been encouraged? And as you look at verse 12, we'll get the answer. It says, And then the Levites arose, and we'll skip some names for a second here. It says, And they gathered their brothers, they consecrated themselves, and they went in as the king had commanded by the word of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Did they buy into it? Were they fired up? Were they running out of the locker room? Yes, they were. Now the names of the people that are listed there, these are the descendants of the people that David had put in charge some 
300 years earlier, 270 years earlier here. And so we read them. I'll read them to you. It says, Mahath, the son of Amasai, and Joel, the son of Azariah, they were Kohathites. Remember, the Kohathites were given their place. Of the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, and Azariah, the son of Jehalel. And of the Gershonites, Joah, the son of Zimmah. And then there was Eden, the son of Joah. And then it says, of the sons of Elizaphan, Shimri and Jeuel. And then of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah and Mataniah. And then finally, the sons of Heman, Jehuel, and Shimei from David's day. And of the sons of Jeduthun, Shemaiah, and Uzziel uh, would be during Hezekiah's day. And it goes on, it says, They gathered their brothers, they consecrated themselves, they went in as the king had commanded, and they cleansed the house of the Lord. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought out all the uncleanness that they had found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord, and the Levites took it and they carried it out to the brook Kidron. Now, the temple is situated in such that it's facing uh, the uh, Mount of Olives. Um, so you have the Mount of Olives here, then you have this valley, and then you go up to the Temple Mount area. That valley area is where the brook Kidron runs. So essentially they take all this stuff, this junk, that has been accumulated here in the temple and that the Lord is despised with, and they take it and they put it out in the front yard, and then people would just begin to bring it down into the, the valley there, and they destroy it, they burn it, they do something with it, but they just get it out of the house of, the, uh, the house of God. And they begin to get the work, they gather others, and they begin to co-labor beside them. But again, notice, the first thing that they do is before consecrating the house, they consecrate themselves. Now verse 17, it says, They began to consecrate on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the month they come to the ve- came to the vestibule of the Lord. And then for eight days they consecrated the house of the Lord, and on the sixteenth day of the first month, They were finished. Sixteen days to cleanse this temple. Then they went into Hezekiah the king, and they said, We've cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering, all its utensils, and the table for the showbread, and all its utensils. All the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless, we have made ready and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. So remember, a lot of the sacrifices involved fire. And you don't just you know, reach your hand in there. They had these utensils specifically. They were covered with gold. Some were covered with silver. And they would do the task. Many of those were taken out of the temple and sent to other countries so that those other countries wouldn't attack the Israelites. Now, if these guys are going to worship again and worship in these, ways, they, in these ways, they need those utensils. And so that's the idea. They're making them. They're consecrating them. They're cleaning up the ones that were left behind. And they come to the king and they said, we're ready to go. Temple worship can resume the temple's been consecrated the utensils have been complicated uh, consecrated we have been consecrated it's now time to restore temple worship to judah and so verse 20 the king says oh we'll get around to it in a couple of months you know he says he rose early and he gathered the officials of the city and he went up to the house of the lord they brought seven bulls seven rams seven lambs and seven male goats for sin offering, for the kingdom, and for the sanctuary, and for Judah. For the kingdom, for the sanctuary, the temple, and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. And so they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood, and they threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them, and the priests slaughtered them. And he made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all of Israel. These sacrifices hadn't been performed for maybe as many as 16 years. But the cleanup job was completed, so Hezekiah, he rises early, and now they begin. Notice the first sacrifice that they bring is what is called the sin offering. Now I'm sure many of us are not as familiar with the Jewish um, feasts and sacrifices that were involved there. But the Jews had a whole number of different types of offering. So you you read about the wave offering and the trespass offering and the fellowship offering and the burn offering and the sin offering. They had a whole bunch of offerings. Each offering was designed to communicate a slightly different message to the Lord. The first one that they begin with here is the sin offering. And the purpose of the sin offering is to bring the worshiper back into right relationship with God. 
because we know that sin separates a person in their relationship with God. You can't have light and darkness having fellowship with one another. And so here's a worshiper, in this case the entire nation, that has gone off into sin. The first offering they're going to bring back is the sin offering. Because if fellowship is going to be established with God again, then a covering for sin had to be made. Now notice verse 24, and I say a covering for sin. Because in verse 24 it says at the end of the verse there, it speaks about making atonement for Israel. The word atonement there is a Greek word, kafir, and it's a word which could be translated or means to cover. Now, when in the Old Testament, with all of these sacrifices, there's other words that could have been used, by the way. But this is the word that is used here, covering, as opposed to the idea of taking away. You see, in the Old Testament, when they would bring the blood of the bulls, they'd bring the blood of the goat or the lamb and the sacrifice. The blood of the, that sacrifice didn't take away the people's sin. It simply covered the people's sin. We read this in Hebrews chapter 10, New Testament. It says, as it's speaking of the Old Testament practice, it says, it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should ever take away sin. So the sacrifices that we're looking at, they're not taking away people's sins, but rather they're covering people's sins. So a picture of it that you can imagine is if you had a table that was laid out there and someone put, took like a big piece of paper, poster board of some sorts, and they lay it there and they list all the sins of you or of the people, your family, whatever it be, they list all of those sins there and then somebody else came along with a big bottle of deep red ink and just sort of poured it out over that piece of paper there. Well, when the judge comes and he looks, he doesn't see any sins that are listed. He has his suspicions about you but he doesn't see anything as listed. He has no evidence. All he sees is this covering of this deep red ink over your sins. That's the idea of atonement. And so the Lord would look past the sins of the people because they had been atoned for, they had been covered by the blood of these animals here. But if that system was good enough to work for all eternity, then it would have continued on for all eternity. But that was all a picture. It was all looking forward. And as we mentioned, I I quoted to you Hebrews chapter 10 just a few minutes earlier. Hebrews chapter 10 goes on to explain that it all looked forward to the Lamb, not not whose blood would cover our sins, but the Lamb whose blood would take away our sin. So one of the first few verses of uh, the Gospels in John chapter 1, I think it's verse 29 or so, John the Baptist makes a statement which all of us should have underlined in our Bibles. Because the statement is such, and it's like, you know what, there's a new sheriff in town, and things are working differently now. Because it says in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who covers our sins, no, it's who takes away the sin of the world. You see, this is a completely different sacrifice. This is the perfect sacrifice. And I'd encourage you, read through Hebrews chapter 10 to get a great understanding of this idea. Here's one verse from that chapter. It says, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Old Testament system, sacrificial system, it looked forward to the fulfillment in the person of Jesus. He became that final and complete and perfect sacrifice. The best that they could do in the Old Testament is identify with this animal and look to God for the covering. And so we learn that the person who would bring the sacrifice, or the dad of the family, would put his hand upon the animal, the animal's throat would be cut, the animal would die, it would writhe in its pain, trying to sort of avoid that pain that is coming on it. And all the while, the worshiper is holding his hand on the animal, acknowledging the place and the, the result of his sin, identifying with this animal so that his sins could be temporarily, if you will, atoned for. That's the sin offering, this idea here. Now, as we pick up, looking in verse 25, Hezekiah gathers the worship leaders. They dust off these instruments that David himself had either explained how he wanted them built or he built them. Uh, And now they're going to begin to prepare the people to offer a second sacrifice. We'll read about it. It says, verse 25, And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. Then the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. 
And then Hezekiah the king commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also. And also the trumpets accompanied the instruments of David, king of Israel. And the whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All they, uh, all they continued until the burnt offering was finished, or the idea was consumed. And when the offering was finished, and the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves in worship, and Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and they worshipped. Now if you read through the Psalms, you know that many of the Psalms will begin with a little note that says the Psalm of David. Sometimes it will give the circumstance of the event. Some of the Psalms begin, and it says a Psalm of Asaph. So that's who we're referring to here, that at the conclusion of this burnt offering, when it was consumed, they began to sing songs, Psalms of worship, Psalms of David, Psalms of Asaph here. Now, we've already talked about the sin offering, and again, that was to deal with the worshiper's sin problem. Now, though, in the section we just looked at, it's not the sin offering this time, but this is the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was a voluntary offering. Everyone didn't have to bring it if they didn't want to. But it was a voluntary offering that Hezekiah says, we're going to make a burnt offering on behalf of our nation here. It was an offering which spoke of, remember every single offering tried to communicate a different message to the Lord. The message that was being communicated with this offering was an offering of consecration. It was a way of saying to God is, God, you can have me completely and totally. And what they would do is they would bring the animal, they'd bring it out there in front of uh, the temple building itself in the courtyard, they put it up on the bronze altar, and then the sacrifice, the animal, would be completely consumed. This wouldn't take a half hour, this would take days, perhaps. And the priests would continually use the implements and they'd move the item around and put it in the hot part of the fire, and the sacrifice would be completely consumed. It was a way of saying to God, God, I am completely and totally yours. You are, as we might say in the New Testament, you're the Lord of my life. We say to people, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? The idea of Savior would be the sin offering. The idea of Lord would be the burn offering. I, if you will, made the sin offering when I came to Christ for the first time. And I said, Lord, I want to be forgiven. I'm just a wretched man. I stand, I was a kid at the time, I'm just a wretched kid. I stand here before you and I'm exposed. My sin is exposed in front of a holy God. And the sin offering, Jesus on the cross, was presented on my behalf, and the Lord accepted that, and I was forgiven. Now, I don't go back to him every single day. I do confess my sins daily, but I don't go back for him for salvation again, because I have my salvation. But I go back to him daily, and so should you, and say, Lord, I'm bringing my burnt offering. I'm consecrating myself to you. Now, sometimes we do that at a retreat. The women are going on a retreat the end of September. And no doubt many women during that time away where they've given God the opportunity to speak to their hearts, God's going to speak to them. And no doubt somewhere in a small group, somewhere during the large group meeting, somewhere sitting under a tree somewhere, no doubt some of them women are going to walk from there and say, you know what, Lord, this year is going to be different. I consecrate myself totally to you. And that's great. Sometimes on a Sunday morning, that sort of an event takes place in people's lives. Either they go for prayer, they come up forward to, to talk about something, or just sitting there quietly there's this commitment again to the Lord. But the reality that I have come to discover is this. I can't wait to do that once a year. I can't wait to do that once a week. But I need to daily bring the burnt offering to the Lord. I need to daily say, you know what, Lord? Yesterday, I wasn't so perfect. But today is your day. I'm giving myself to you. And Lord, when you lead, I'll follow. And when you direct, I'll go with you. Totally consecrating myself and committing myself each day in a new way and in a fresh way to the Lord. This is how the Apostle Peter phrased it. This is found in 1 Peter 3.15 where he said, In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. You know, so I'm sure some of you, you've seen pictures or whatever that there's a throne of your heart. And who's sitting upon the throne? Is it you or is it the Lord? Well, what I've kind of come to discover is there's sort of the Lord and there's Greg. And Greg oftentimes is moving in this direction and the Lord is moving in this direction. And if he is my Lord, and if I have consecrated my life to him, and now I'm obeying, as he is leading, then I have to move in this particular direction. And if I choose, you know, I'm not going over there this particular time. Well, then I haven't set apart Christ in my heart as Lord, and I've drifted. The Apostle Paul, he said, slightly differently, but he said this. 
He says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body, he says here. Again, the idea of the burnt offering is complete and total consecration to the Lordship of Christ in our lives. And it's what we should be doing daily. And honestly, I've come to discover I need to be doing it even more daily because I have good mornings and then bad afternoons. And so regularly, I'm coming back and saying, Lord, I'm yours. Lord, I'm yours. Lord, I'm yours. Well, following the burnt offering, as we move on to verse 31, Hezekiah says, you know what? All right, we're open for business. They put the sign up there, and they're ready to go. The lights flash and that little neon light. Looking at verse 31, it says, Hezekiah said, you've now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all who were of willing heart brought burnt offerings. The number of burnt offerings that the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. All these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. And the consecrated offerings were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But the priests, this is so cool, they were too few, and they could not flay all the burnt offerings. So until other priests had consecrated themselves, their brothers, their Levites, helped them until the work was finished. For the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in consecrating themselves. Now, the point there... just in the middle of the passage. Uh, the priests didn't just show up for work and do whatever they wanted. There was a process in which they consecrated themselves, prepared themselves to go about the work. What they're discovering is the number of people that were ready to work that particular week wasn't enough. And so they put out a call to their other priest friends and say, hey, how, how long will it take you to get here down to Jerusalem? We need more priests. And so those guys have to come there first off. But secondly, it's a process to consecrate themselves, to uh, prepare themselves. Fortunately, there were Levites, they're not actually priests, but there were Levites that happened to be there in the city that had gone through that whole consecration process for no other reason than we like to do it. We like to be in right standing with God. And so people look around and say, look, I know it's not proper, but we need more people, and you're ready, can you do it? And a special exception is made, so these Levites there, they take on the responsibility of the priest until the other priests are ready. Why? Because the people are so excited to return to the Lord, that they're coming in great numbers voluntarily to bring the offering here. So much so that the priest, they can't keep up with it. So more priests are called in. Look at verse 36, it continues. It says, Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored, and Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced, because God had prepared for the people, because this thing had come about suddenly. Again, the picture is, one day, maybe a month earlier, King Ahaz is king. The temple is boarded up and shut. They haven't gone there in forever. All the priests have left the city of Jerusalem because there's no work for them there. They're worshiping. There's uh, altars that are set up all around Jerusalem and Judah to worship these false gods. Everywhere the Jewish people go, they're seeing these things that are occurring and they're thinking, what happened to our nation? How did we get to this particular place? That's one day. And here they are now, two weeks later maybe, a month later let's say, And everything is completely different. Ahaz is dead. The temple is no longer boarded up, but it's wide open now. Down in the brook of Kidron, all that idolatrous worship is being burned and destroyed. People are coming. Jerusalem is swelling. There's priests everywhere. They're hearing the sound of the animals that are being sacrificed. And they're looking at this and they're saying, how do we get from here to here in two weeks? And their conclusion is simply, only God could have done what has happened. You know, and here's one of the things that I've come to discover in my life and in the lives of people that I know that are seeking to follow the Lord, is people are observing what God has done in your life. I remember I was telling a story earlier that after uh, high school, I, I became a believer during my senior year of high school. Uh, yeah, I didn't go out and start standing on a street corner and preaching to people. I just sort of, it was a work that was going on in my life and God was kind of changing me and, and doing a new work within me. But most people out there, many people out there in school wouldn't necessarily notice. A few people took notice of some changes that were taking place in me uh, and stuff, but for the most part, not very many people. But then I went off to college. And during that four or five years that I was away at college, I come back now to a high school reunion. And during that four or five years that I was away at college, God had changed me in some amazing and significant ways that were very clear to even the casual observer. They were seeing the sanctifying work that was happening on the inside 
and was beginning to manifest itself on the outside. So I show up at my fifth year reunion, and I had been that guy, and I'm not that guy at all. The only thing the same is my name. And people are looking, and they're wondering, and they're hearing. And people actually began talking. I shared a, this was a scary story. I went into the bathroom. I like a little privacy. I don't know about ladies. Ladies, you know, you like to go together. I don't know what you're doing there. But for me, I'll come in, I'll come out, we'll talk when I get out. So I go into the bathroom, and there's a line of urinals there, and I'm getting real personal with you here. But I, I go to utilize one of the urinals, and a fella comes in, not even interested in going to the bathroom. He just wants to chit-chat. He wants to talk about this work that is going on in my life, and what has happened to you? And it was, I said, can we talk in five minutes, you know, when I get out of here? Can we chit-chat then? But the point is this. He was seeing this change from idolatrous worship to worship of the true God. How did we get here? This has to be God. And he literally said, would you tell me about this? In, in the respect of your God, your relationship with him, and what happened to you? And it's, it's glorious. People are observing the amazing things that God is doing in your life, the change that he is uh, bringing about in your life from the inside, and then it works itself onto the outside. And they're enamored by that. They're drawn to that. Because every one of them, and, and you have probably been in that place before, you look at stuff in your life, usually around uh, the first of the year, um, New Year's Eve and stuff. You look at your life, you say, I'm going to lose weight this year. I'm not going to be as mean this year. I'm going to start reading this year. You come up with all sorts of resolutions of things you're going to do. And I think the average person finishes it somewhere by the second or third week of January, and it fails. I remember Pastor Joe Foch from Calvary Chapel of Philly. One of the things that he said is, as he gave his life to Jesus somewhere around 20 years of age or so, he came back to his family, and he says to his family, I found Jesus. He was a hippie guy. He said, my life is completely different. Everything is wonderful. Everything is great. And blah, blah, blah. And he goes on, he's explaining this. And what his older relatives had said to him is, we'll see. Because they had seen him go through the boxing years, you know, when he was going to be a great athlete. They had seen him go through the musician years. When I found life, I'm going to be a, a Beatle, you know, rock musician. They've, they've seen him go through all these other things, and this is just one of those things. Now it's this Jesus fella. But you know what? He's been doing that now for about 40 years. And they've seen his life being changed. And it's not just some fad, but God has done a brand new work within his heart, and it can only be attributed to God. And... and Joe is a tremendous teacher, and God is using him in, in a lot of ways there. But what's interesting is he's using him in the lives of so many other people, and so many of his family were so reluctant to come to the Lord. But then someone 20 years into his walk, and then another guy 25 years, and then his parents after 30 years, and aunts and uncles and so on. And the point is, people are seeing and they're observing. And so I'd encourage you, when people look at your life and they, how? Then they wonder, point them to the Lord. This is the Lord. And this is what the Lord has done in my life and he wants to do in your life as well. So they clean up the temple. Now they're ready for work, right? Looking at chapter 30, verse 1, the next thing they're going to do then, they've had these sacrifices. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to have Passover. We haven't done Passover as a people. This is the greatest of the religious feasts. I guess an argument can be made for some of the others. But this is one of the three most significant feasts in the Jewish uh, life of the Jewish people. They hadn't done it for 15 years and here now, he says, we're going to have the feast, celebrate the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let me read this to you, about ten verses. It says, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, they wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover of the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem, they had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month, because they couldn't keep it at that time, because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. Now, just a quick aside. The Passover was to be celebrated during the first month of the Jewish calendar, uh, religious calendar, that is. So that would be around the month of April. However, in Numbers, I think it's Numbers chapter 9, if it turned out, for whatever reason, that the people were unprepared or something caused them to not to be able to keep the Passover during the first month, then they had the option to do it during the second month. And Hezekiah is essentially saying, I think we should utilize that option. Let's have a Passover in the second month. It seemed good to the people, it said. It seemed right to the king and to the assembly. And so they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all of Israel, from Beersheba in the south to Dan up in the north, that the people should come, they should keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem, because they hadn't kept it as often as prescribed for years. 
So they sent couriers throughout all of Israel and, Jude, Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, just as the king had commanded. And the letters said, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord, God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation, as you can see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to the land. For the Lord your God is gracious and he is merciful, and he will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Now I think verse 1 provides for us a window of just how sweet and awesome this brother in the faith Hezekiah is. Again, look at verse 1. It says, he sent this letter to all of Israel and to Judah. And he also wrote to Ephraim and Manasseh. That they were tribes of the north. I understand him as the king of Judah sending out letters to all the people of Judah. Saying, look, I'm your king. We've gone wrong. We need to return to the Lord and so on. I understand inviting them to the Passover. But notice, though, he also sends an invite to the northern kingdom to Israel, to Ephraim and Manasseh, those tribes from the northern kingdom there. Israel, Ephraim, and Manasseh, they're the people that rebelled against the rightful rule of the line of David. 250 years earlier, the rule that the line of rule that Hezekiah himself comes from, these are the people that rebelled against that, and yet these are the people that he extends the olive branch to and he invites. When we talk about all Israel, Ephraim, and Manasseh, these are the people that literally just a few years earlier and possibly just a few months earlier, had killed 120,000 of his own people and had threatened to take away 200,000 of his own people into captivity. No doubt Hezekiah observed all those things and saw all those things. And yet, it's to those people that he extends an olive branch and he says, look, we've strayed. We, people of the South, we have strayed and we're going to go back to the Lord and we're going to seek Him once again for His mercy and his forgiveness, and you guys are invited to go there with us. The Apostle Paul says this. It's in the book of Ephesians. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you think Hezekiah, at least a little, struggled with the sense of bitterness and malice toward these people from the northern kingdom for what they had done to his nation? I suspect that he did. Do you think he struggled, at least to some degree, with unforgiveness in his heart for the measure of cruelty? Remember when God had to confront the people of the northern kingdom and he said, how cruel can you possibly be? How cruel they were to Hezekiah's own people? Do you think he struggled with a little bit of unforgiveness toward them? If he's like you and I, then he at least struggled with it to some degree. No doubt there were probably advisors in his life that came to him and said, you know what, I don't think you should invite the Israelites. You can't trust the people of the northern kingdom. Maybe they said, you know, they don't deserve to be invited. Look at the things they've done. They don't deserve to be invited. Maybe some have said, you know what, they don't even want God. They've completely rejected God hundreds of years earlier. Don't bother inviting them. They'll never want to come. Maybe there were some that were like Jonah. You remember the prophet Jonah? Where God says, look, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be the evangelist to a group of people that will respond in amazing numbers. Greatest revival maybe that has ever happened in the history of the nations. And you're going to be at the front of that. And Jonah said, I don't want to go. And why didn't he want to go? Because he didn't feel those people of Assyria, of Nineveh in particular, should be able to be forgiven. They were so wicked, they did such horrible things, that they don't deserve to be forgiven. And if I go, God, and I tell them about your love and your mercy, you'll forgive them. And so I ain't going, he says. No doubt there were some people that came to Hezekiah and perhaps said that to him. The people of the north don't deserve to be forgiven. Don't go up there and invite them to come down to see God's mercy. But Hezekiah, to go back to the quote from the Apostle Paul, he knows that if he harbors bitterness and unforgiveness in his own heart, while at the same time seeking the Lord for forgiveness 
on behalf of his people, that those two things are incongruent. Those two things don't line up. They don't measure up with one another. He knows the truth of Paul's words long before Paul would even write it, that we need to forgive one another as God forgave us. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, these words, he said, well, I'll tell you the story a little more. He makes the point that if you're going to go before the altar to bring your gift, to present your gift to God, and then you get there, and you remember that there's somebody you know, outside of the, the temple that you got a problem with, or they have a problem with you, he says, leave your gift there. Just put it on the side for a second. It'll be there when you get back. And the words are, he says, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. To harbor bitterness or unforgiveness or malice toward another and then to go to God as if everything is rosy. And, and this is the key, that you have no intention to let those emotions go. So there are instances where you'll come to church and you're wrestling with being angry with someone or frustrated or having a hard time forgiving and, and those things. That's different from coming and saying, you know what, I'm done with that person. I won't forgive them anymore. I won't wash them anymore. I won't let them go, you know, this sort of stuff. There's a very big difference from coming and struggling with it and coming and saying, I don't care anymore. And what Jesus is essentially saying, and, and here the example of Hezekiah, is you cannot be in this place where it says, I will, I will not forgive, I'll maintain my bitterness and malice toward that particular person, and at the same time go and worship the Lord. And so essentially Hezekiah leaves his gift, writes this letter, sends it out to the people, and he says, look, you guys you're invited. We're going to seek the Lord for His mercy and His forgiveness, and you're invited to receive that as well. Now, this invitation was written to a people that had rebelled 250 years earlier. They're set in their ways. You know, sometimes I think we look at people in our lives that maybe they've gone astray, and maybe this particular week was a rough week, and they did all sorts of things, and they went in all sorts of directions, and you're thinking, oh, God, would you, would you help them? Change them. It's been a week, and, and Lord. But we think a week, and there's possibility for change, right? Maybe it's been a year. Maybe it's been, you know, their high school or college years. It's only been four years, but, Lord, they're going so far. But you could bring them back, Lord. Remind them of the things that they learned when they were younger, and so on. Here's a people that have been set in their ways for 250 years. It would be safe to conclude they're not going to change. It's been 250 years, but Hezekiah will not accept that thinking. Notice he says to the people of Israel, 250 years in rebellion, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Essentially saying to them, look, it doesn't matter what you've done and how long you've done it. Return to the Lord and he'll receive you. Aren't those amazing words and truth? Return to the Lord and He'll receive you. Then in verse 7, he goes on, he says, Don't be like your fathers <coughs> and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers, so that He made him a desolation. He says to them in verse 7, Return to the Lord, doesn't matter what you've done, how long you've done it. He says, Learn the lesson from those that have come before you. Don't make the same mistakes. Then in verse 8, he says, And don't now be stiff-necked. And it goes on and, and says a little bit more. He says, But instead... Yield yourselves to the Lord. Come to His sanctuary, which He has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God, that he, His fierce anger may turn from you. His third counsel to them is this idea of not being stiff-necked. Stiff-necked is the idea of resisting the direction you're trying uh, to be led to go. You know, So a lot of times we think of our dogs or whatever, we put them on a leash, and for whatever reason, they don't want to go where you're going. And so they... they harden their neck and they just kind of stay in that spot and you're dragging them along for this walk that you guys are having as you drag your dog along uh, the grass there. He's stiff-necked. We might use a phrase in the New Testament a little more commonly, don't harden your heart, it says. And so God is extending an opportunity to these people here in the north to be washed, to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be restored. And he's saying here, don't resist that inclination of the Lord, that he's drawing you back here. Don't resist it. And then finally, at the end of the letter, Hezekiah, he sort of throws out the net. He casts out the net to see what he can catch. He says, if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children, you will find compassion with, 
and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. Why? Because the Lord is gracious and He is merciful and He will not turn away His face from you if you return to Him. This passage here, it's a beautiful example, to use a New Testament phrase again, of a people that had fallen from grace. That is, it's a people that had known the mercy and grace of God. It's a people that had seen God's handwork miracles, that had enjoyed the blessing of God upon their lives as they sought to live their life according to His ways. And so they've experienced the grace of God and they rebelled against it. This passage here is an amazing uh, look at the fact that when people have done that and they have strayed, that nonetheless they can still return. And so I wonder in your lives if you know of a person or persons that have fallen from grace. You know, I, I just sometimes, every now and again, sometimes I'm so busy, nobody I know really, really close, like my kids or something like that, have strayed from the Lord. But sometimes I go back and I just sort of stop things and I think through old friends that I've met along the Christian journey, so to speak, and how some of them have sort of gone astray and they've drifted. And I'm sure some of you, you know people like that. Some of you, it's your husband. Some of you, it's your kids or your grandkids, or people in your life, or friends here from the church, or other places, and they've drifted. They've seen God's miracles. They've seen the blessing of God's hand. They've experienced God's mercy and grace. And nonetheless, they rebelled from that. And there's a wonder, wondering, can they return? Should I even bother inviting them there? Some of us, maybe, even this morning, maybe this past week, we drifted a lot. And we wandered. And we openly said to the Lord, you know what, I'm going my own direction. And we were stiff-necked, if you will, against the leading of the Lord here. Here's the reminder again. This letter was written to a people that had been in rebellion for 250 years. The message of the letter is you're not too far gone. If you return, He will accept you. And so we think about those in our lives that are prodigals. Or maybe we're prodigals, we're wandering. And for those, here's the words, and I, I just want to take the bottom portion of that verse because the words are so amazing. It says in, in verse 9, For the Lord your God is gracious, and He is merciful, and He will not turn away from you if you return to Him. Isn't that great truth? Burn that into your hearts, because what the enemy will do when you have drifted and when you've wandered, or people in your life will destroy the, hopeless, the hope that you have. He'll make you hopeless. They'll never return. They'll never be able to return. Or He'll communicate to you that you will never be able to return. You don't deserve to return. Look at the things you've done. Look at the things you've said. Look at the places you've gone. You don't deserve to return. The truth of the Scripture is, you do have the opportunity to return. You don't deserve it, but you have the opportunity to return, and the Lord will be gracious and will be merciful, and He won't turn His face from you. Again, we looked last week, when the prodigal came back to his dad, his dad didn't take a look at him and say, you know what, you need to suffer a little bit. You need the cold shoulder a little bit. You need to beat yourself up a little bit more. Instead, what he did was he came and he ran out to his son with open arms and he hugged him and he invited him back into the family. And so here is Hezekiah extending an invite to these prodigals of the north. And he writes this letter. Verse 10 says, So the couriers went from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun and... We'll have to stop there. So we won't know. We, for a whole week, we won't be able to know. Did they say yes? Did they come back or, or not? So we'll, make sure you come back next week. You'll find out whether or not they responded to the... I hope they do. Wouldn't it be great if they all just say, yes, all of us, we're in. You know, so we'll see. Don't read ahead this week, because I don't want to ruin it for you here. But I, I do think there's a valuable lesson for us considering our own hearts. Maybe the Lord, even this morning, has been ministering in your heart in such a way with a big thing, or maybe even little things as far as the grand scheme of things are concerned. And he's saying, you know, you've been drifting a little. Return. The invitation has been given to you to return. How will you respond? We'll find out next week how the Israelites will respond. But today determines what you'll do and how you'll respond. So I want to encourage you, if the Lord has been speaking to your heart, He's been leading you in a particular direction, don't be stiff-necked. Don't resist His leading. It's the small little decisions that we make that we build our lives upon. And those small little decisions of obedience where you're willing to forgive a person, where you're willing to forsake a particular thing in your life, where you're willing to do what God is speaking in your life to do, it's those small little decisions that your life is built upon. 
Don't be stiff-necked. Respond. Let the Lord lead you the direction he wants to take your life. And that's where the place of blessing is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even now, uh, 2,500 years later, or more, 2,700 years later, Lord, that we can hear these words and the truth of these words and the great truth that the Lord our God is gracious and merciful and that he will not turn his face from us if we return to him. And Lord, that is just, uh, that's different from our nature. That's a heavenly thing. And Lord, we want that to be more of our attitude of our hearts, but even right now, Lord, we return to you in a fresh way. Lord, every one of us has an area of our lives or areas of our lives that need to be exposed to the glory of God. And Lord, we need to be changed from the inside out. So we bring ourselves in a fresh way. And as you reveal things to us, Lord, teach us to not be stiff-necked. Teach us that there's a greater blessing in saying yes than in saying no. And Lord, lead us in the way, as your word says, everlasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.